Welcome to the SLB Podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative. And in episode 12, we'll be paying tribute to Michael Long, who sadly passed away in February of this year, 2021. So things have changed a lot since the early days, but the basic motivation, the positive motivation has been my recognition along with that of the field that a lot of language learning, even by adults, is incidental. In other words, without intending to learn the language as object and implicit, uh, an ability that adults maintain throughout their life, um, not just for language learning, but for everything else. Um, and can be applied in part to language learning, which doesn't mean to say that explicit language learning is unuseful. In fact, it's probably very useful. We can get into that later if you want. Uh, But that, of course, coincided with the idea that if somebody was focusing on doing a task and learning the language incidentally while doing it, um, so much the better, because it has the advantage that you can be doing what you need to learn to do, such as the tasks for a particular job, or if you're an international student, the tasks that you need while studying at an English medium or whatever medium university it is. Uh, without um, having to detract from that, you can pick up the language along the way. So to the extent that that's true, then TBLT had a huge advantage over um, classes where the focus was on the language itself mm. and uh, nothing on the on the content. And that was Michael Long talking to me on our podcast back in 2019 about his motivations for developing task-based language teaching or TBLT, one of the things that Mike's become most famous for. Uh, but his career has been long and varied and to celebrate that on the show today we have uh, four people who knew Mike well, who were taught by Mike, who worked with him, and who were inspired by him. And in order of appearance, that will be Jeffrey Jordan, Roger Gilabert, Marta Gonzalez-Juret, and Karma Munoz. I'm uh, Jeff Jordan. I'm uh, still working a little bit at Leicester University uh, as an associate tutor in their uh, MA programme on applied linguistics. Uh, but um, most of all, I suppose my reason for being is that a very good friend of uh, Mike Long's. And um, we worked on uh, various projects together. The latest one being we were working on a book when he sadly died on um, uh, the state of uh, ELT. So uh, that's me. Okay, so I'm uh, Roger Gilabert and I um, currently work for the University of Barcelona. And I'm in the um, Applied Linguistics, uh, also uh, MA program, Second Language Acquisition and Applied Linguistics in Multilingual Contexts. And, uh, you know, the reason I became, when I, when I met Mike, I was already a teacher, but I was not uh, carrying out research. Uh, and the reason I started uh, conducting research was Michael Law, right, when he came to Barcelona. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that later. And that's me. Marta Gonzalez-Lloret. 
I am a professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa, where Mike used to teach a long time ago. I'm originally from Spain, but I've been here 29 years already. And Karma. Yes, and myself, I'm, I'm in the same department as uh, Roger Silaver at the University of Barcelona, and I teach in the same master's program, and we are in the same research group. And I met Mike also here in Barcelona, as Roger did, and that was at ESADE. Yes, thanks, thanks to the great, those great years, uh, we have missed so much, right? That, that's where I met uh, Mike. Uh, for the first time, mm -hmm. uh, sometime in the early 90s. So, Jeff, I imagine that had something to do with you, that uh, when we yes. Asadi. Yes, uh, at Asadi, we, the boss there, decided to do a MA, a master's in um, applied linguistics and TESOL for people in Spain, particularly our own teachers, actually. Uh, and so we collaborated with what was then the IOE, the Institute of Education in London, and together we organized our masters. And we all, we, um, part of the masters was a summer school. Yeah, and, that's-, that's... Uh, The summer school that we organized had a terrific uh, list of invited speakers, uh, including Mike Long, who, came on four different years, I believe. And that's where uh, Carmen... Uh, yeah, and myself. Yeah. Where Carmen and, and, of course, Roger, too. So, yes, Mike was a very uh, important part, a very enthusiastic, uh, couldn't, couldn't wait because he loved Catalonia so much. It was a terrific opportunity for him to spend some more time uh, <laughs> in Catalonia. And he was a terrific contributor to the program. And Marta, I think maybe you didn't say how you met Mike. I know that you studied with Mike's wife. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> he, he, like he was my first. Kathy, he was yeah. my first professor. He was my first professor at the Department of SLA. I was doing a master's in uh, linguistics. And then I wanted to change into SLA, so everybody told me, just take Mike's class, and if you survive it, then you'll be able to, <laughs> to do the program. So that was the first class I took. It was a class on second language acquisition research, and I, I just fell in love with the subject, and that was it. I was hooked to, to change from linguistics to SLA, and after that, I got a, a PhD in SLA. So, yeah, I survived that, that class. <laughs> tell, tell us, why, why would people say to you, uh, if you survive it, was it Mike's personality? Was it the, the heavy content or was it a combination? Why would people say that? No, the class was fun. I thought it was hilarious. It was a fun class. You know, everybody that has been in a, in a class with Mike knows that he has a wicked sense of humor. And... Um, I just spend every class like laughing, but most of my classmates, we most, most of them came from Korea, China, from Asia. Their eyes were like plates, like what's going on here? You know, it, it was a little bit tough on, on some of the students, but I just thought it was a really good class. Yes, it was heavy on content. Uh, it was a seminar, so most the students already had it based on they were either teachers, they had experience teaching, or they knew a little bit about TESOL. So um, it, was, it was a heavy class in content, but mm -hmm. um, it was a wonderful class. I, I had a blast. 
question. Although I almost cried when I um, got my paperback, my final paperback. Um, he wrote under the title, if I was an editor in a journal, I would have stopped reading here. Oh, <laughs> he <was right>. that's, <laughs> that, <laughs> <laughs> Why? It was right under the title. And I, I actually remember I called uh, Lourdes Ortega, who was a PhD at the, at the program at that moment. I'm like, oh, like, what grade did he give you? He gave me an A minus. Oh, you're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> what didn't he like about your title? What, what, can you remember what the title um, I had two typos in the title. Ah, typos, okay. <laughs> My English was not the best. I, I you know, my grade was okay, but I had arrived like uh, a year and a half or so to Hawaii, so it was not very good. Well, I think uh, as far as I know from Jeff, this is this is something that might continue through his life that he was still giving you a hard time about your typos, Jeff, in the book you're writing with them and your punctuation <laughs> right up to the end. Is that right? The commas, yes. Uh, right up to the end, they couldn't believe it. The poor guy was, you know having trouble eating, but he had no trouble telling me off about my punctuation, <laughs> spelling. Uh, it's just extraordinary. Uh, you know, uh, he never stopped. Uh, and I was amused to see in the wonderful um, uh, tribute to him that you organized, Martha, so many people saying the same thing. You know, how, how, and I, as I, I think I've said on your uh, web, Martha, that, Kevin, I said to Kevin Gregg, I said, What's, what, what is it with uh, Mike? What's the matter with the guy? And we had a jolly good laugh about how strict Mike was about these, these things. And he said, uh, Mike sort of hoards most of the commas in the universe. We're very lucky that we occasionally <laughs> find a few to use ourselves. <laughs> so this is another thing that comes through. So the website that... Uh, you set up Martha in, in memory of Mike. We'll we'll put a link to that in our in our show notes because there's some really nice reflections nice. and memories. But something Martha just mentioned, the sense of humour. A lot of people comment on that. I didn't know him very long at all. I knew Jeff introduced me to Mike, and he worked with us on our TBLT course. Uh, but just reading, you have the driest prose. And suddenly he would slip in some uh, comedy uh, reference or some invention. Um, in the, the 2015 book, there's, um, I think he puts in ENP, or English for Nebulous Purposes, and then FLOP, Foreign Language for Occupational Purposes. Uh, he also, I think he invented the, the noisy method, <laughs> which he put in an early, an early paper. Is that uh, something that you all recognize that he was... Uh, Martha says a wicked sense of humor. I guess that came through in a lot of the work he did. Yeah. yeah. And in his courses, right, in his classes, he would uh, slip in all these uh, comments about what he really thought about some ideas, some of the ideas in teaching, for example, about the history of teaching and uh, the, the, the methods that had uh, given teaching a bad name. He would always talk about that. And uh, so definitely he had this ability to combine that like in-depth um, because, uh, in fact, Marta was talking about uh, content being heavy in those courses. And I remember his dossiers for all the courses I took with him were this thick. He loved photocopies and you were supposed to read everything. I thought this is a summer course, you know. <laughs> and, and, but it was, it was huge and he expected you to read this. And I did read that and I still remember those, those, those articles, right? Because they were important to, to what he was saying. 
but um, yeah, that was that was his his uh, combination of a very serious stuff with with an, uh, an an outstanding sense of humor. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think he also had some favorite targets, like yeah. for example, textbook writers. Oh yeah, <laughs> his, his comments about textbook writers yes. were really really good, really humorous. Yeah, he could have caricatured them as, as sitting on desert islands sipping martinis, no, on their private, their private islands. Uh, he always yes. he had this, uh, which I think, you know, when I was training to be a teacher, this was an image of textbook writers. I don't know if that still holds, because I think textbooks nowadays are chopped up and parceled out to freelancers who don't get any royalties. But I suppose at the yeah. beginning, they were things that people could, could make a lot of money off. And I suppose this was the... That's right. Um, but I don't know, we shall not name names. <laughs> yeah. Well, he actually does name a few names. <laughs> <laughs> Including, of course, David Noonan, and uh, who yeah. David uh, made the mistake of telling him on a plane. Uh, David used to live on planes, mostly, you know, traveling here, and uh, David Noonan. And David said uh, um, in his latest uh, textbook, course book for over there in Southeast Asia, he said he just it just clocked up its fourth billion. <laughs> and Mike said, "Is that with a B?" <laughs> and then David said, "Yes, <laughs> yes." And, uh, and, and yes, yeah, so he, you're quite right, Carmen. He was uh, very tough and that's actually one of the things that we we really got along on because I I have a similarly dim view of course books as a, as a way of delivering um, ELT. That's, so that's maybe we could just talk, it's very difficult in a short space of time, but uh, his legacy as an academic is, is massive. And I think uh, I'm not wrong if I say that he was still developing ideas up to the end. I, I think maybe that's what separates him from a lot of other people. I think lots of people are lucky if they have one fantastic idea in their in their lives. Um, but Mike seemed to not only have several, but he, he seemed to continue to develop and to, to research and to produce uh, new concepts, new ideas uh, right to the end. What, what are some of the most important concepts or, or work that Mike's left us in, in SLA and instructed SLA and with TBLT? So maybe starting with interaction hypothesis, maybe that comes at the beginning. What else would you highlight Yes, the, the concept of uh, focus on form and, and his classification of uh, syllabi, right? The idea that we have this, uh, you know, either exclusively focused on forms kind of approach, which most traditional uh, teaching has, has used. Uh, and then he uh, then focused on meaning and, and uh, you know, the, the radical opposite. And kind of in the middle was focus on form. And that's uh, what, what he was defending from the very beginning. And that, I think, has been a crucial concept that has had enormous consequence, uh, consequences for everything else. Certainly in TBLT, I mean, he was one of the first people to promote this idea. And he has been, I, I think you would agree with me that he was very stubborn about his ideas about TBLT, and that has actually moved the field forward, right? And it didn't only happen with TBLT, of course. It was also with other aspects of SLA. But certainly for TBLT, his contribution at the beginning was, was, was crucial. And, and he, he's been the, a source of inspiration for so many people that, that, you know, on the basis of what he said first, have developed their, their own ideas. Um, so he was at the very beginning of everything. And he kept this idea of uh, TBLT alive and active throughout his 
academic life until the very end. I mean, he just is about to publish. There's a book that is going to be uh, published about. I mean, yours, uh, um, Jeff, but also the 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 handbook with Ahmadian uh, that is going to come out soon. So he's been working on on TBLT for for his whole life because he truly believed in uh, you know in the connections between TBLT and SLA uh, and he explored those and he built on those throughout his uh, academic life and that is I think amazing a, a very coherent uh, kind of um, academic uh, trajectory. I just wanted to remark on this stubbornness uh, that Roger was was talking about, right? His his I was thinking of radical, right? He he maintained his viewpoints in a way that I think it was very good to all of us because we knew where he was, right? And and we mm -hmm. could we could uh, position ourselves in reference to him, or everybody was in all the in all the areas where he worked, positioned themselves with reference to Mike, which was a stable reference. Right. I think I think that's also uh, uh, an important um, trait of, of his uh, academic life. I was going to say, but that also that uh, within TBLT the idea of needs analysis, course, because yes. you know TBLT is continuing, but you know his insistence that needs analysis is essential in TBLT, he has been you know the champion of of the importance that he has, and and I think the person that has really, really insisted that that has to be an essential part of TVLT. And I think that that has a lot to do also with, with his idea of um, when we teach languages to, to respect the people to receive, right? The, the, especially English, right? Not the opposite of colonization of English. So, you know, teaching what people need because it's their need, not because someone goes and teaches what they think that they should be learning, right? So these, these social conscience that he also, that was so strong in him too. I think it, it permeates through the academic work and, and I think more than anything on, on the importance of needs analysis. Yes, and it's also his idea of target task needs analysis. Needs analysis that you so often read about um, <clears throat> in terms of asking people what kind of English do you need and, and, and the usual rather inadequate uh, needs analysis. Uh, so I think in that way too, Mike, was um, very important to see. started out uh, in the 80s pretty close to crashing in a lot of ways. And... Um, and then I think one of the really uh, big things he did was with Crookes, his, um, his sort of reformulation of the difference between synthetic and analytic syllabuses, where he moved Wilkins' uh, uh, functional notional into the synthetic uh, group. So there I think he had a very, very big influence, um, and that became a sort of seminal reference work. Definitely. And then after that, it, um, he, he moved into some negotiation of meaning, um, which is, you know, his kind of thing. And finally, his probably his most uh, well-known focus on form idea, as you say, Roger, that attempt to split the binary grammar or nothing <laughs> to, to, to syllabus design. So, yeah, I think he had a tremendous um, long-standing, what, 40, 50-year influence on the development of SLA. He was so active, so prolific in his work. 
He collaborated with so many people. He organized conferences. He, he was incredibly, a real force, an enormously sort of energetic enormous. Um, force for good in, 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 in radical thinking in LA. And I, I really like Karma's. Uh, comment that you could all, you, you could measure the rest. <laughs> you, you Mike was kind of this 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 signpost, <laughs> or sort of um, you know um, where where are you in relation to what Mike's uh, doing? <laughs> I agree. He was still open though to shifting his his thinking. I mean, Jeff, I think you were telling me that towards the end you were talking to him a lot about the task complexity issue which i mean it was far from resolved uh it still is far from resolved right and and mike says as much in his book that this is one of the areas that needs the most work but he was i think jeff you mentioned to me that he was uh maybe moving a little bit away from robinson and towards skiing's position is that right or is that a miscarriage um i was talking to peter recently uh, about mike's uh death and he is pretty he's not terribly uh, convinced to, to put it mildly of, of Robinson and never has been and Mike always saw Robinson's stuff as more theoretically which of course it is uh, based there's more of a theory there's more Peter very much to sort of bottom up let's see what happens when we tweak this particular element of complexity frequency and so on so his work, Peter's work, was um, far more piecemeal, if you like. It wasn't as theoretically driven. Um, and Mike liked Robinson's stuff because it, it sort of explained, well, why, would it, why, why is it that we have this sequence of um, tasks uh, in terms of complexity? Why does that work? But the problem with it is, is nobody can really agree on, on so many of the rather sort of fuzzy constructs that are involved. So although Robinson's um, framework is kind of attractive, it doesn't actually pan out terribly well, and the results are not particularly good for the studies, whereas Peter Skeen's work does get rather more support because it's because it's more modest it doesn't make such uh, theoretical claims and doesn't claim to have such explanatory power and so i think well when mike and i were working on a chapter of our book on summarizing sequencing of tasks in the tblt syllabus he just said to me listen robinson stuff is actually far too complex let's just go with skiing because it's much easier mm -hmm. so it's not actually we didn't actually get to talk about it much and i really don't want to suggest that mike kind of threw over mm -hmm. uh, robinson's um framework but he did tell me as i told you neil that we were going to go in a simplified chapter talking about the sequencing of tasks more towards the kind of stuff that peter's uh Skian was talking about mm -hmm. and the point perhaps is that he was flexible on this he was he, yeah. he, he realized mm -hmm. that we weren't we didn't have any fixed position peter robinson has done a huge amount of work for more than 20 years on this developing his uh, framework 
Um, and Mike was very sympathetic to it. They did a lot of work together. John shipped the bastards and went to a bloody <laughs> usage QB theory of SLA, for God's sake. I know it's a game for that. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, yes, what's the point here that he was, he flexible, he was moving. He, yes. Uh, just to say, I, I would hate to give the impression that he, he kind of rejected uh, Robinson's work because he didn't. Okay. No, no, he didn't. But he, but adding to that idea of flexibility, I remember in the last chapter in, in for the handbook, um, we, with a colleague, we talked about uh, you know the issue of task complexity when it comes to morphologically complex languages like Russian or Polish, and you know Mike rejected for a long time the idea that the linguistic component of tasks would contribute to the complexity of the task. He said, no, 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 tasks have, have to be organized according to conceptual cognitive complexity not the language and we said yeah but you know when it comes to Russian and Polish the language is contributing to the cognitive load of the task you know that it makes the task more complex if you have five declensions to deal with or you know uh, whatever it is and you know he accepted that you know after several revisions he was very adamant about keeping his position but in the end we managed to convince him and said at least the possibility that this may be a factor affecting task complexity should be considered linguistic difficulty right yeah. and um so he was open definitely to, to 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 new ideas until the very end yes but not perhaps maybe i bring in marta because i think you you made this comment marta that he wasn't so convinced about your idea of the technology mediated tblt but he was a, <laughs> also a self self-professed luddite he, he was he was quite anti-technology wasn't he yes. was that a factor in that yeah i, I think he's we we managed to get email so that that was good <laughs> email was a, a useful thing but i remember after the plenary talk uh in barcelona my talk, which was all about technology, uh, he came to me and he said, I'm sure that what you said was really good. I did not understand one word of it. I'm really proud of you. And I believe he did not understand one single word of what the whole thing was. But um, he just, yeah, he knew he was not going to go through that. He's just, he refused to go into technology. But, you know, we had good conversations about it too. I mean, he understood that it's, it's part of the world and as part of the world is, you know, part of teaching and everything. But mm -hmm. the resistance was there. He, he, maybe he had this attitude towards technology, but at the same time, he had tried to bring TBLT and technology together with that article he wrote with Kathy about the principles, the methodological principles applied to uh, technology or in a technological context. So he, there was these attempts to, to, to bring those two things together, even if then, you know, in practical terms, he was ne never into, into technology, right? Well, yeah, the one about yeah, I don't know learning. how much of how much of that article was actually Kathy's. Yeah, <laughs> oh, maybe you're right. You're right. I gotta say, <laughs> because in in two or three, uh, I I was in in Hawaii and Kathy was well. They, I think it got published right before they left. Hmm. But at that point, Kathy was my my PhD advisor, ah, so I know okay. that you know she that explains was it quite, then. quite a lot into technology. <laughs> Here, not so much. <laughs> I was amazed that we managed to get Mike to do, do a video conference so we could record them for our course. Yeah. 
and he did you know in prison so he wasn't that you know <laughs> i don't know how much help he had from kathy but he, he was able to <laughs> a lot <laughs> majority <laughs> yes um, maybe carmen could bring you in because it seems to me one of the mike's biggest interests towards the end was moving towards looking at uh, uh, elaborated input multimodal input these are things that, that you've been uh, working on a lot in Orogen as, as well. Yeah, that was one of the things I wish we had had time uh, to work together. I remember once um, when he came over for the TBLT conference that uh, Marta was was talking about now here in Barcelona. Um, I, I remember we were having breakfast at home. You know, he 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 somehow he had a reservation at the hotel, and and the next day uh, he, he he didn't have a reservation. So I, I brought him home, and we were having breakfast in the kitchen. And my my son came in, and Mike told him, "You see, Fran, your mother and me, we are going to work together in an article now about incidental learnings for multimodal input." <laughs> Because that's something we finally agreed on, right? That's something we found on which we, we agree on. So that was something very nice. And I, I thought, you know, he was interested and in, in the work we were doing here. We thought the official input. Mm-hmm. And uh, he even used uh, an article that a doctoral student of mine and myself had written on, on uh, learning English through uh, television series. Mm-hmm. He used that article in his master's program in Maryland, mm-hmm. um, and and we were really proud of that. So I, I can only say that uh, we had these brief conversations, thinking it would be so nice to talk about. So interesting to see what was happening there mm-hmm. with multimodal input and incidental learning. But that 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 was it, right? We we didn't have the time to pursue any any collaboration of that. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jeff, you you gave us a or you gave me a, a, a sneak peek at the chapter uh, in in your book with Mike, the forthcoming one, where he seems to you know his famous ten methodological principles, which I always thought had a bit of overlap between between some of them. He he seemed to have have boiled them down to to four important areas, and one of them was heavily focused on on what Carmen was just talking about, wasn't it? Maybe you could say a little bit about that without giving the game away for what's going to be in the book. But it was very interesting. Well, yes, um, he did actually in, in the very weird. Um, this book we're doing is on ELT, the way it is and the way it could, should be. And um, there's a chapter on TBLT as a kind of antidote to coursebook-driven ELT. Uh, and <laughs> perversely, he insisted that I write it, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty ridiculous. But anyway, he said, I'm tired and you know enough about it. So anyway, I, I, I did so. And um, he was very keen to include in it the work Carmen and other people are doing on, on this multimodal. Um, but it does seem, in reference to uh, his uh, methodological principle, six or whatever it is on um, lexical chunks. For Mike and for us all, of course, it's one of the biggest questions that remain. You know, how on earth do you help people uh, learn this very important part of uh, the English language? 
And there's no very obvious answer. There are far too many to do it explicitly, and probably that wouldn't work any, but there are, nevertheless, for adults anyway, difficult things to acquire for various reasons. And he thinks that a very, very promising partial answer to that is uh, all this new work that Carmen's involved in, and others are too, in um, multimodal input. So that's when I... I'd been kind of asleep, you know, I didn't realize there was a special uh, issue of um, two big journals, right, recently, devoted to this. So that's when I told you about it, Neil, because it kind of woke me up. Uh, and poor Mike was too ill to, to fill me in on it, so I was scrambling around reading all this stuff, including McCarmen's stuff. Um, and it does seem to me a very, very interesting, very hopeful and very promising avenue of, of uh, research into um, solving this problem. The recent article as well, he published about elaborated input, which I think mentions the, the importance of, of, of multimodal input. This seems to me a development of the, the earlier the focus on form. I think there's a natural connection between this idea of uh, elaborated input and, of course, multimedia input, because that's what multimedia input does, yeah. right? It reinforces uh, and elaborates on, on the input through image, text, and sound. Um, uh, but also there are, there are also interesting possibilities about how to manipulate that input through, yeah, input enhancement to draw attention to certain aspects of the of the subtitles or the captions. So there are a number of ways in, 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 into which we could, I mean, there are a number of roads we could take when it comes to designing stuff for people to, to learn certain difficult aspects of the language. And, and, and so to me, there, that, that's a natural connection uh, between the two. Yeah, but at the same time, the idea of elaborated input was in Mike's, um, in, the set, in what, in the 90s? In the 90s, in 1994, yes, right? 1994 yeah, yeah. is the article yeah. with Jano uh, and Ross, right? Yeah. Yes. So it's really a great development over the years. I mean, that's great. <laughs> Was it also, uh, Jeff, I, 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 we are so interested in this latest book, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us, you know, I don't know the chapters or... Where was the focus? Yeah, Mike got in touch with me. I wrote this rather sort of scandalous blog, having a go at course book given the LT, basically, <laughs> which Mike followed and thought was very amusing because I was deliberately sort of rude and obnoxious. And um, Mike said, why don't we write a book on this? Why don't we write a book having a go at the way that ELT is organized, the fact that it's an industry that um, bows totally to commercial pressure and can be understood in terms of its reliance on big companies that are far more interested in the bottom line than in any educational principles. So I said, well, absolutely <laughs> delighted. And so we started, we, we, we kind of sketched out the areas that would be kind of looking into the four main areas of uh, sort of what we call the sort of interlocking ELT Hydra, which were publishers, course books, materials, um, the provision of uh, courses to adults particularly, teacher training, 
um, which fits into it, Celta and Delta, particularly Celta and the Trinity and the other ones that um, provided by private outfits, and um, and testing the the huge business, multi-billion business that is um, proficiency scale testing. So those were the sort of four areas that I uh, mapped out. Um, and I said, okay, we'll, we'll have a look at those, see how they're done. This will be a very hard-hitting book. We're, we won't put any punches. We're both anarchists, both. <laughs> I, 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 I keep looking at your, the book on the extreme right of my screen, Roger. Is that Marxist capital you've got there? No, it's, it's Piketty's. Uh, <laughs> Piketty's, uh, uh, Piketty, yes. Piketty's uh, capital, yeah. yeah. That's an interesting yeah. book. I, I it, think, it is. I think Mike was, uh, Mike, you know, was a member of the anarchist uh, the AHC and he used yes. to write that. Yes. There's yes. a very critical review of um, Piketty's book. Have you read it? Uh, um, no, no. I don't think Mike would have um, given you much for that. Anyway, <laughs> so we, <laughs> he wasn't a particular fan of Piketty. Um, but anyway, uh, so we said, right, well, that's what we do. We're, this will be very critical. We'll, we'll, we'll explain how it is, and then we'll try and um, suggest some alternatives. And so off we went. And the, ne <laughs> the next thing that happened was I got six chapters about SLA, <laughs> which he totally written. They're marvelous, absolutely marvelous restatements. Um, uh, so <laughs> the, the, the book got off to a, a far more intellectual, academic, and thoroughly interesting start than I, I thought it would. So it contains, Carmen, the first chapters which I managed to take out a few comments from no I uh, made a few minor contributions and then the so that's the first part the first our argument basically is how on earth can you teach English if you don't know how people learn it yeah so uh, really we ought to start with uh, a, a proper consideration of how people learn second languages so uh, that was basically Mike's mostly Mike's job I had one or two little contributions and then the second part was how it's actually done and that concentrated on course book driven uh, ELT con and then looked at teacher training in terms of the way it's done and the dummies who do it and then at um, exams and testing and the, the huge basically Cambridge assessment and uh, Pearson and the other big players and then the third section was um, alternatives, looking at TBLT, looking at things like CLIL, immersion courses for children, and finally uh, ending up with um, stuff on um, radical movement and stuff that Neil and others are doing in a more hopeful direction. So that's basically what it is, Carmen. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, and it's excellent news because, you know, somebody that has taken this seriously and has written about this and has analyzed it, because in my classes, when I talk about, you know, when I try to explain why people haven't learned more English in the context of Catalonia or Spain as a whole, um, you know, I always use... You know, my, my own arguments, the arguments I learned from uh, Mike Long. But it's 
great to have a book that we can refer people to that will explain why this conglomerate of interests from publishers, textbooks publishers, and then the, the testing industry, etc., have blocked many societies from progressing in their learning of languages, I mean, because of their own commercial interests. So, we thank you. It to the, we had a fairly minor, all the major publishers uh, rejected it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask who is going to publish it. Finally, it's Cambridge Scholars is going to publish oh, it. Okay. We've, written, we, we've signed a contract with them, um, but they haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, the, 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 the sparks will fly when they do. Um, I think it would be interesting um, because I, I, I guess you were aware that Mike had this second authorial career writing for, for anarchist publications like... Uh, is it Libertarian uh, Labour Review and things like that, writing about things like cooperatives in Spain and the Mondragon co-ops in, in País Vasco, for example. Was that well known in academic circles that he had this sideline, if you like? Because I know he didn't, he told me he didn't like to really publicise that, you know, his anarchist uh, affiliation, if you like, because he felt it might put his job in danger that, um, you know, in terms of his career. I can't imagine that towards the end anyone could really touch his career, but I know that he was reluctant to explicitly state these things. But I wonder how, how many people kind of knew. I guess his politics were fairly obvious, right? I think he, he was very open about them. At least when he was in Barcelona, he was very open about it, about uh, um, politics, because he, of course, admired Barcelona and the anarchist movements from Barcelona. And we had uh, lots of conversations about that. I remember once the... Centro de Cultura Contemporánea of Barcelona, uh, they organized an anarchism tour and they would take you to the important aspect. And I, I remember telling uh, uh, Mike about this because I had taken my mother on this tour uh, uh, around those those points. And, and he was very, uh, you know, he was fascinated by this. He wished he had taken that tour himself uh, uh, because he, he was always talking about it. That was, that was very natural uh, for him to, to, to talk about that. So I was aware. I, I was not aware that uh, he was keeping that from, from others. But, oh, yes. that's a publication. This is, uh, I think he's got an article yeah, in this. He, um, he, he, the, I think the latest one, he, he did one on Mondragon, a very big one. Yes. Uh, but he did at yeah. least 10. Yeah. Um, and most of them were related to Spanish, the anarchist movement. Mm-hmm. And Carmen uh, knows lots about that because Mike, uh, I have to say, Carmen, he, he, I think the thing he enjoyed most was staying with you in, in Barcelona. He was always uh, so happy to see you and so pleased to, to be in your lovely home. And uh, he had some absolutely wonderful course he did. Yeah. I think we should all emphasize this, how much he loved Catalonia and... Uh, La Meca. La Meca. La Meca. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if I may add, I remember when, when uh, Kathy was pregnant and they were looking for a name for their son. And uh, I suppose it was jokingly, but he wrote once telling me that uh, he was thinking of Buenaventura. Because of Buenaventura de Ruti. And I said, of course, no, you shouldn't call yourself Buenaventura. <laughs> so, next thing, he comes with 
Jordi. And I said, okay, that's Jordi Pujol at the time. I said, <laughs> no. that's, that's not the name. I would Nobody give my son because of Jordi Pujol. But of course, Jordi Pujol was a gnome in the States, so that was not a thing. So in the end, it was Jordi. It was yeah, more of a Jordi Cruyff, maybe, because of Barca. No. Jordi Cruyff. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, when when he was here, I introduced him to a couple of friends of mine who were in Fenete, and and he was very happy. He always looked for encounters with old Fenetistas, mm. and um, yeah, I say, I, I, yeah, I was surprised, Neil, when you said that um, he thought that 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 it was somehow a, a hidden aspect of his, because I think it was the first time when we finally sat down, the first ever time we, we sat down, you know, for a meal, etc. It was, it was, you know, we started talking politics and how my grandfather was in the colectividades in Aragon during the Civil War. And, and that was the point, that was really the thing that made us, you know, be friends forever. Um, yeah. It was so strong in him. Like yeah. I don't see, I don't know, Marta at Hawaii. Like you've worked in the same I university. Think, yeah, I think maybe not. Not. I don't think a lot of people knew on the academic, mm -hmm. um, on the academic circle, unless you were also a friend and you know you enjoy a good okay. glass of wine and his house and you know saw the pictures and everything else. So, yeah, I think probably because you know of the stigma that he has in the United States somehow. Yeah. But I mean, if you were a Spaniard, the second question he would ask is like, do you know what Mandragon is? So, <laughs> you know, it's like no way to hide that after that. That was, sure. you know, right after, where are you from? And then, you know, what side did your gra your grandparents <laughs> part of the Civil War? And he then he said, you know what Mandragon is? <laughs> Basically was that, right? Mm. But uh, yeah, I think probably not a lot of people in the academic circle knew about it. Yeah, I think it's the kind of open secret type of thing. I'm not saying that he hid it. He, uh, obviously, he didn't. And uh, he wouldn't have sent me all these publications that Jeff was showing. And I don't know, an enormous article about Mondragon, because, of course, in, in, within anarchism, uh, that type of cooperative, there, there are conflicting views. And I think Mike was someone who defended Mondragon, whereas other people saw it as a kind of another capitalist enterprise and, and blah, blah, blah. I mean... But when we were recording a podcast with Mike a couple of years ago, I wanted to explicitly ask him about all this stuff. And he said, please don't. Let, let's talk about, we can talk about the influences on TBLT, for example, the, you know, the free education and, and things like that, that he included in, in his 2015 book. But he didn't want me to explicitly say anarchism or ask him about his anarchist uh, affiliations, if you like. So that was all. It was just obviously something he was careful about in terms of his public presentation. But obviously, as you're, as you're saying, privately or with friends uh, or with people he mm. saw as allies, he certainly wasn't trying, to, uh, wasn't trying to hide it. I wonder if we can just talk, I mean, go back to the Roger at the beginning. You mentioned that um, Mike kind of set you on your path as a, a researcher. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe, maybe we could talk about how Mike influenced each of you. Well, when he came to this Mediterranean Institute uh, from Esade, um, you know, I, I had, um, you know, read a little bit about his work, but uh, I wasn't fully aware of what Michael Long meant in terms of SLA and, and TBLT. So I attended this course 
And, you know, uh, I was so fascinated by it and by the thick dossier with photocopies that, that I, I, at the end of the, of, the, you know, of the course, I went up to him and said, listen, I am, you know, organizing a language program at the time I was working for a private university in Barcelona, Ramon Llull. And I said, and you have answered all my questions. Could you keep answering them? Because I'm going to uh, conduct this needs analysis. And, uh, and, and he he said, yes, I will supervise it from Hawaii at the time he was in Hawaii. And um, I'll be happy to help you uh, with this. And he not only helped me for a couple of years during data collection and analysis, etc., but he also helped me with my first, my very first uh, chapter um, on, uh, you know, my, my, my first academic chapter. Uh, and of course, it was a neat analysis and it was a, 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 the beginning of my career. I think he was a little bit the force behind my uh, the start of my my research, definitely, and I'm so grateful for that. Martha, how's how's Mike influenced you in your career? Obviously, the concepts been a big influence. Well, I'm doing TVLT, so <laughs> yeah. I, I I think for me, his his way of expressing his ideas was somehow I don't know charismatic. If that is a word in academia, I don't know if if that's a word, but uh, convincing maybe. So, you know, I try to, to do what I think he make him proud and, you know, defend the, the idea of TVLT that I think is what he thinks TVLT should be. Mm-hmm. So many times I think that would be a lot easier to do the other kinds of TVLT, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think he truly convinced me of, of why, you know, it, it's, it's good and and you know why why it's the tblt to promote so in a way for me it's the pillar of of what i do mm-hmm. and if you had yes. if you had gone to one of the other kinds of tblt he might have disowned you right because he did. <laughs> yeah he may not let me come back to see him if he became a disciple of jane willis he would have let you know about it i would imagine oh yeah never, when he saw that we included uh, some some of Jane and Dave Willis's stuff in our course, uh, he was like, "What are you? What are you putting that in there for?" <laughs> but I suppose there's that the Freudian concept, no, the narcissism of small differences. No, he was maybe particularly uh, reactive against things that were close to what he was doing, but what he considered to be, you know, doing it the wrong way. Uh, we think about his rivalry with. Uh, Rod Ellis up to a certain point and he was very angry when I talked to him about what about this proactive uh, focus on form? The person who's done the most damage to the concept is Rod Ellis. Uh, it's really ir- ironic. He, he published a, a critique of it a couple of years ago and was saying, oh, the thing has changed so much. Well, actually, the person who's changed it was not me ever. It's still the same as when I first came up with it. Uh, it's him more than anybody else. And so he's the person who introduced the idea of proactive focus on form, which is a contradiction in terms. I mean, mm. by all means, by all means, uh, Rod Ellis and anybody else of his ilk is welcome to advocate for something completely different from focus on forms, which is that you, in his, his ideas, you, you put in the stuff before the person makes the mistake, but don't call it focus on form. It just confuses the field. Carmen, what about you? I mean, you mentioned that he said, finally, we agree about something. Did you have, did you have lots of academic disagreements with Mike? Well, okay, yeah. That was the age factor, right? Okay. Um, that, uh, um, 
when I visited him in, in well, I visited Hawaii, it was Craig Chaudron, whom I met also at the Saturday at the Mediterranean Institute, who invited me to, to visit Hawaii. And I was at the time preparing for this uh, age factor research. We were going to start here in Barcelona. So as I wrote in, in Marta's website for, I mean, the tribute for, for Mike, um, I remember going into his office and telling him that, you know, I was, go I was interested in collecting material, reading about uh, the age factor and talking to all the professors there about their work on SLA, etc. And he pointed to a pile on, on, on the floor of his office and said, take that. <clears throat> and I don't know, I mean, it was like more than one meter high pile of work. And I could see, I, I think that, that was, I think that was the, the first impression of what it was like to be in a center like that university where, which had all the knowledge of everything that was being done around the world, right? I said, you know, comparing to us here in Spain or in Barcelona, I mean, many years ago, we knew about what we were doing and what was being published what was published, but he knew about what was not published, <laughs> what was starting, what uh, had failed, what had succeeded. I mean, the knowledge he had, it was impressive. So, okay, so I took that and I started investigating and we did our research here. And of course, uh, he was a defender of the critical period hypothesis, right? We haven't talked about this because this has less to do with, with what we were talking, which was instructed SLA, right? Um, and, and when we collected data here and analyzed it here from school learners, we saw that um, we were facing something totally different, right? There was lack of input, so the implicit learning mechanisms weren't working. We were not getting the results that he expected, which was that the younger starters would do better, not even in the long term. So, of course, in my publications, that's what I said. And um, that, if you if you want, that was in a that was a bit of a confrontation. But but I would say it was a healthy confrontation because uh, even in his 2013 book, the one with Gisela Granjena, um, he wrote to me with the draft of a chapter where he criticized or responded to what I had written um, to check whether he was misrepresenting me or not. Um, so, you know, we had a bit of a, of a discussion and um, I said, fine. And then when I read it, I could see that we were agreeing, right? It looked like we were not on what he wrote because he said, okay, Munoz says that, um, blah, 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 blah. But if we had preschoolers, we had very, very young kids in an immersive situation in the school, then the youngest would do better. But of course, I would agree to that because that's when you had immersion, right? So I left it at that because I said, this is so nice, we are agreeing. He's not realizing we are, we are agreeing on this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, I, I, I wasn't interested in pursuing any, any, any discussion. Maybe I was different from other scholars who like to, to be discussing this, uh, you know, publicly. Uh, so I think in the end we agreed. Yeah, I think, I think he saw the, the need for this immersion, although he didn't explicitly say so, mm -hmm. right? 
So he was still maintaining his, his very strong point of critical mm. period. And um, I didn't mind because my, my, my point is that you need that input mm -hmm. for whatever advantage the young kids have sure. to be realized. Mm -hmm. So, so that was that was yeah that was I think the 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 conversation we had about the age factor. Mm -hmm. Well, that's important, isn't it, to anyone's work? The dialectic involved, you know, the to be Absolutely. to get critical feedback to to have to sure. um, respond to that, right? Yeah, and I, I was very proud that he respected my position mm -hmm. because when I started and published about the age factor I was very junior in research I mean I wasn't junior in age but it took us a few years to have SLA accepted as an academic discipline at the university here mm -hmm. or in Spain yeah. right so when I started my work in SLA I was not that junior but before that the University of Barcelona has not had not allowed uh, any work on SLA to be accepted within uh, any academic area in, in modern languages. Mm. So, yeah, I was proud to have this respect from him. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, it's just interesting to me, um, having I've been recently working at the Universitat Alberta de Catalunya on a new <laughs> course with Alexandra Malitska, one of my jobs was to, because we teach TBLT both in English and in Spanish, and one of my jobs was to find and and uh, find as many Spanish uh, language sources, uh, articles, academic articles, academic work on TBLT as I possibly could, because of course, as you know, in English, <laughs> the problem is not finding it; it's it's, it's it's choosing which you know which text to use. But in you know in Spanish, I, I suddenly found that Mike had written in Spanish. He published this article or this chapter. Uh, uh, textos o tareas, which is a kind of, I suppose, a Spanish language manifesto for, for TBLT. And uh, he told us that he worked in Peru and Mexico at the beginning. I wonder if he, did he speak Spanish? Yes, yes, he did. I spoke Spanish to him sometimes. And so I wonder if this article had an influence, because I, I imagine as you, as Spanish speaking, and I know, Roger, you've also published in Catalan, as Spanish speaking academics in a field which is dominated by English, I know that uh, you have published, I uh, know Marta, you published in Spanish as well, but I imagine you most often have to publish in English. Did Mike, having written in Spanish, did that help at all? Uh, or is it it's very difficult to, to publish on, on TBLT and other things in SLA in your, in your first languages? I think now people are showing a lot more of an interest. I mean, the fact that recently I was contacted to write a book on tasks in Catalan for Catalan teachers of Catalan as a foreign language. Um, I, I think that's the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, of other languages being very much interested in what TBLT has to say about, about learning and teaching. And so I think it's a matter of time. Spanish has quite a few more publications, definitely. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, English is overwhelming, uh, the amount of publications um, into TBLT in English is, is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think things are changing. I have this, this anecdote also concerning Mike. I, I published, I edited a book um, in Ariel. Um, it was a very good publishing house. And um, on SLA in Spanish. And I, I believe it was like the first one, right? It's still cited. And I invited Mike to write a chapter for it and he refused the invitation and uh, his comment was something about 
uh, the work being buried and not read enough because it was in Spanish. Mm. Um, Kathy accepted, Craig Chadron accepted, Lourdes Ortega accepted. So maybe in retrospect, I, I think I think maybe if it, instead of being 1999, I suppose 1998 when the project was going on, um, if it had been later, uh, maybe he would have accepted. But at the time, he still saw Spanish as as a, you know a language in which his work would not have that um, diffusion, that mm-hmm. distribution. So that that's been a change in time for him and for everybody. Yeah. Martha, how about you? Do you see more? Uh, you know, more and more possibilities to publish in Spanish about these areas or, or, or not? I think so, yeah. Like, Roger, I get more and more petitions on, on writing things in Spanish mm-hmm. because there's large audiences that, you know, mm-hmm. have a little bit of access to English, but, I mean, if they're speakers of Spanish, why should they be, you know, reading in English, right? Why, why yeah. not facilitate it in, in the language? So, right. yeah, I, I think so. I think... Uh, now, I, I think maybe Mike wasn't as sure of his Spanish sometimes, mm-hmm. like, you know, speaking conversational, but, you know, his writing is so good in English, right? That being able to write in the same way in, in another language, if, you know, if you're not very, very comfortable, I think that would be uh, it's, it's a challenge. I don't know, maybe, maybe he didn't think that it was that. I, I translated a couple of things for conferences and I think mm-hmm. for for articles, I usually either look this or they or I will take a look at it and things like that. So I think maybe he didn't feel his his written Spanish, his academic yeah. Spanish was at the mm. same level, level that his English was. Yeah, sure. yeah. We had to translate some chapters from English, and and of course translations are never as good as the original. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. It's a problem, isn't it? I mean, just two quick comments. The the terminology gets translated differently by different authors. So you've got EPT, no, enfoque por tres, or you've got enseñanza, la enseñanza mediado por, you know, all these variations um, that make it difficult. Also, I noticed that those people who had been writing on TBLT in Spanish, I think, uh, Estaire, Zanon, they, they were, it was a much lighter, if you like, version of TBLT or a more task-supported uh, yeah. language teaching. I suppose maybe in the tradition of, of teaching Spanish as a second or foreign language, it was yeah. still a very much a structural approach that the earlier uh, early writers on TBLT, at least, they were trying to find a way maybe to, to balance mm-hmm. it, right, by having more communicative work. I have some colleagues in the Russian department who are trying to write about TBLT in Russian, and they don't even have the word for task. The word doesn't exist. So they had to come up with a very creative approach to this. So um, it, it, it's very hard, uh, really, to be precise uh, in other languages. But it, I, I'm delighted that they are trying to push this idea in Russian as a foreign language you know, environment because that's something people need and they are interested. And there's nothing uh, not coming from the tra- Russian tradition, definitely. Uh, some people are working on, on TBLT in Russian in the United States and also here in Barcelona. So hopefully they will get their message across, but it's, 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 it's a big challenge. It is, it is. Yeah. I think that's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think Mike always referred to language teaching, not, not English language teaching. You know, I think he was interested in, in, in all kinds of language teaching. So oh, definitely. it's fantastic that, uh, you know, these, these ideas are spreading and it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Okay, 
anything final you would like to add or any thoughts? Well, you, you haven't even mentioned Barca yet. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try not to mention it too often at the moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to say, as I also wrote in the tribute, that uh, here the, at our university and our department and our research group, we are so thankful to, to Mike. Mike, you know, really supporting everybody, welcoming our Absolutely. students. Gisela Granena, you know, who was her co-author, I mean, she was her co-author and, and, um, and um, she, she was with us. She was submitted there. Um, Angel Zianis was submitted there, etc. So he, he always welcomed them. And uh, they, when he was here, he was so generous with his time, with, uh, with all his recommendations. Absolutely. And so we, we, really, we really miss him. We really will miss him. I think that's what comes out so strongly from Marta's uh, website tribute. The, the number of people he helped is extraordinary. His, his generosity. Generous. Yeah. Um, so many world. people, uh, not just Carmen, Roger, Marta and me, uh, I feel I owe everything to him, but it's just extraordinary how many people uh, spoke about that in Marta's um, yes. website. He, he was, you know, the number of yeah. uh, doctoral students he helped, the number of people whose uh, academic careers he, he I mean, he, he was tough, you know, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly, but um, he was very encouraging, so generous, inspiring uh, to so many people. Uh, I think we should really remember that about him. He was, you know, so many people owe him so much. Yeah, I agree with Jeff. I was surprised at how many people he helped. Like, I thought he was helping us. It's like, yeah, it's like the father of so many children, right? They didn't know they existed. That was my impression. I thought, wow, it's, it's, it was only us. It wasn't only us. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so many generations too. Yes. And you have people that just graduated writing, you know, very emotional messages to people that have known him yeah. for years and years. So it's not like he did it during a time of his life and he said, okay, I'm tired now enough, right? No, it's like it's been continuously... Um, yeah, that says a lot about the character. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he was, yes, academics, but also teachers, activists, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, groups of people that he was interested in and, and he was helping. So enormous generosity, without a doubt. And do you want to mention Barca? Because I know you got him tickets. Did you <laughs> well, famously no. got him tickets for, for a yes, classical yes, one. Yes, I have to talk about this because uh -huh. once he came to Barcelona and, you know, I, I happened to mention to a friend, you know, I have this, this, this uh, friend and colleague, Mike Long, who's in Barcelona. He loves Barca. And there was a classical at the time. And, uh, you know, he would be delighted to see a, a, a game like that, but he doesn't have a ticket, of course. And, uh, you know, it's going to be impossible. And this friend told his dad, who had a membership card, and the, the dad said, well, I'm not going to the field because I'm going to get so tense and nervous that he can <laughs> use my membership card and go and see the classical. And so I told Mike, and we took him to the stadium, and he went in, and he, he could not believe, he was so appreciative that, you know, an elderly man had, um, you know, given him his uh, membership card uh, just because he was too tense to, to, um, uh, to see the, the, the game, right? And, and maybe see the possibility of Barca losing. That Mike was, 
you know, delighted and, uh, you know, uh, flabbergasted by this. And so he was, he was very appreciative of that. And, and that shows how, on the one hand, that showed his um, uh, uh, liking of Barca, his uh, almost obsession with Barca, yeah. uh, and his, his enormous appreciation, right, and generosity. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope Barca won that night, did, did they? They did. They okay. did. So he was delighted. And he saw Messi, so he was very uh, happy. Even better. Well, because we had, uh, on the previous podcast we did with Mike, uh, in the earlier one, we Jeff had done his SLA football team very badly because he was trying to, he didn't even know how many players were in a football team. And, and Mike had listened to this. And at the end of the interview, I would say, well, Mike, that's it. Thanks very much. He said, oh, but, but what about the SLA football team? And he had, not only... <laughs> The 11 players, he had coaches, substitutes, really? uh, everything. And every position had a justification. You know, why the goalkeeper was the goalkeeper. So, of course, of course. Uh, um, <laughs> he obviously thought about it a lot. You, I thought you were going to ask me about my SLA football team, by the way, because you asked Jeff. Oh, me. well, I mean, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, had a good lineup. Uh, do we have three minutes? Yeah, yeah, of course. Go, go okay. for it. So, and, that, and some of the people I have in mind for doing that kind of, who are doing that kind of research so well are in it. So here's my, I'm, I'm doing Mike, somewhat. Yeah, hmm? you better have positions because uh, Jordan was useless at uh, the position. I do have positions. In fact, I'm, I'm going for a four, two, one, three. Uh, <laughs> and I'll go from the um, back. In goal, we have Kenneth Hiltonstam from Sweden uh, because he's very reliable, knows his research methods on a wide range of topics, and he's very, very good and careful at the back. The back four, we have from left to right, Manfred Pienemann with all his work on processability theory, and then the two centre-backs are William O'Grady and Andrea Reves, one of these younger people doing such great work on, in SLA in general, and TBLT in particular. And then right, the right back is going to be Mane Bielund, another product from the great Stockholm School. Uh, they're all, I mean, most of them you know all about anyway, so I won't go through the literature unless you ask me to. The two holding midfielders, six and eight, in other words, are going to be Nick Ellis and Alison Mackey, um, because the whole orientation of this team is very much the implicit statistical learning side of the fence. Uh, and the, although we've got people, you know, to, uh, as you'll see in a minute, who are going to keep a t keep tabs on us. But Nick and Alison are two people who are driving the field in many ways. And in front of them, one of my favorite of the, of the next generation at the moment is Alina Godfroyd, uh, currently at Michigan State, um, whose work is just terrific, as is the work of everybody I'm mentioning here. She would be our number 10, effectively playing behind the, the front line. Mm -hmm. So four two, one, and now the front three, these are our attacking players, quite radical, quite uh, aggressive striker, Stefano Rastelli from Italy with his book on statistical learning. He also, if the book is a bit daunting for some people, he has an article in Language Acquisition, the journal in, 19, in 2019, which basically talk, you know, explains his theory in one in article length treatment, but Rastelli on statistical learning, and then left wing, uh, this is just in soccer terms, Patrick Rebuchat, uh, who again is doing um, terrific work, has been for some years. He was a John Williams product out of Cambridge. Now he's at Lancaster doing terrific work on incidental and implicit learning and statistical learning. And then on the right wing, one of my ex-students, a Catalan, uh, Gisela Graniena. Hmm. Fantastic. 
person now just chewing up the literature on age differences, on aptitude, on cognitive individual differences, and so on. So a really dazzling, she's, if you like, the, the Lionel Messi of the future, a dazzling front line with, with new ideas, right behind the Melina Godfrey in the number 10 role, holding the midfield together and driving everything in front of them, Nick Ellis and Alison Mackey, and then a very solid, experienced back line of Manfred Pienemann and William O'Grady, Andrew Rivers and Manny Bielan, with in goal Kenneth Hilton. But that's not all. The coach, Sue Gass. Her ability to marshal a team like that. And then the referee would be Jürgen Meisel. Why Jürgen Meisel? One of the three people I always hold up to our students as being models of, how, of good researchers. Uh, the other two, I mean, there, there are more than two, but uh, the others being uh, Lydia White uh, and Kenneth Hiltonstam. But Jürgen Meisel uh, would be the referee uh, because he's one of the few people in the field who really knows all the UG stuff and everything else. So he can keep, you know, keep, control over anybody who's getting completely out of line either way. And then up doing the VAR, we have Kevin Gregg, who has an idea, uh, 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 an, an eye for detail, and he'll catch any slight mistake. Somebody with one foot over a line, Kevin will spot it. Uh, so he would be in the room upstairs. There are people on the bench like Peter Robinson, John Williams, and others with no time to talk about them all who can come in and, uh, at, a, at a moment's notice. But that lineup, I think, is dazzling. Uh, and uh, they would be my SLA team. And, and Mike, I think the only place left for you is director of football. Is that? Is that <laughs> I wouldn't want to work for FIFA, corrupt organization. <laughs> What really used to flabbergast me about Mike and so many other things was this sort of, the way he could cite sort of 28 references for oh, yeah. anything he ever mentioned, you know. It was just <laughs> extraordinary. He had this mad memory for um, references, you know. I, I've never, I said, how the hell do you do that? I mean, there must be thousands and tens of thousands of references in his bloody head carrying, you know, I mean, I, I've never met anybody who could do that, you know, just talking to you, one minute he's talking about Barcelona, and the next minute there's eight references about some obscure point, uh, you know, just extraordinary. I've often wondered about that, and I wonder if, if, if the reason is that he came from law. Actually, his first degree right. was in law, right? And lawyers are kind of trained to have this great memory for things and texts and references because that's part of what they do. And so I wonder if that transfer to also, you know, what he did um, afterwards with SNA. But it, it is truly amazing. I was always fascinated by that. That's one of the things that was scary being a student. Yes. Because yes. You, he expected you also to be able to yeah. cite things. And when you're a student, you're like, I really know what I'm saying. <laughs> Do I have to actually back it up with someone? Yeah. You know, so that's, that, that was a little bit, yeah, that was amazing. Guy Guy Cook told me once that um, Guy Cook, who worked at the IOE, anyway, he 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 said to me that he met Chomsky once, and um, that it was kind of like you're saying, Martin, you know, confronted by someone like Mike Long. Guy Long was so intimidated by Chomsky's presidents that he he couldn't say a word. He just found himself <laughs> completely sort of um, struck dumb. And he said there was another time when um, he actually, Mike Long knew Chomsky, one of the reasons he knew him was because they were fellow anarchists. 
And oh. Guy Cook, and he talked to uh, Chomsky quite a lot about uh, anarchists that matters. Anyway, they were all in the same place once, Mike, Guy, Mike and Chomsky, and Guy said, Chomsky looked a bit intimidated. This guy coming at him with uh, references to, you know, work Chomsky had written. <laughs> 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 There's a yeah. picture on the website of Mike and Chomsky yes. that oh, someone wow. uh, sent me. And, and was there one with Jordi as well when she was a baby and Chomsky? I think yeah, I, that, I went to visit right. him. Was that the picture you're referring to? Uh, I think it's just them two. I, I don't oh, have one. one with Jordi and There and is Chomsky. another one with Jordi. Yeah, it's like... Bringing, bringing the baby to the, <laughs> the Madonna. <laughs> Hakuna Matata. <laughs> well, that's a nice place to end, I think. It, it's uh, a testament to Mike if, if he was able to intimidate Chomsky as, as well as uh, undergrad, <laughs> postgrad students, uh, other academics. You know, that's probably a nice full stop to put in this conversation. Um, well, thank, thank you for thank organizing this field. Well, not yes. at all. My no, pleasure. thank you for thank putting you. this together, and, and Jeff also. And I will edit it together. We're looking forward to that book. Yes. 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 We are all looking forward to that. Of course. <laughs> we will. We'll club together and publish it, Jeff, if they, if they reject it or they want it. They want it. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I think plenty yeah. of people would, would, uh, would invest in a little oh, definitely. publishing yeah. company just to get that out, you know. Sure. Sure, I would. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. You heard it here yep. first. <laughs> Absolutely. We can nothing. You cannot do on the internet now. We can outsource exactly. it. Just exactly. Have a self-publishing. Kathy exactly. and I, Kathy uh, and I, have quite determined that we won't see too much. Uh, we'll obviously have to make a few concessions, but we're both determined to respect uh, Mike's. We're just think what would Mike say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if they ask us to cut something? And um, yeah. Uh, they, 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 they knew what they were in for, and, and thanks to Mike's enormous reputation, I think they were willing to take the risk. We'll see. Well, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. To support our podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or all the usual podcast providers. And please subscribe and rate us, that really helps. You can also follow us on Twitter at SLB Co-op. And please check out our website www.slb.coop. Thanks again, and until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.